0: So let's stand for the reading of our sermon text. It is Genesis chapter 1. I'm going to read 27 and 28. Genesis chapter 1, verse 27 and 28. This is the word of the Lord. It is eternally true. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and rule over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the sky, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Be seated. So we're back in Genesis, we're looking at the creation orders, the creation ordinances, the creation mandates that uh, God gave to man in his state of integrity. So before the fall, before sin entered the world, God had given man a list of things to accomplish, to do, to pursue. And so um, they... These given before the fall of man is significant. Those original commands, when man was without sin, are um, still in effect. This is the way that God created mankind to uh, work and to do and to be. This is what he did. And so... We've looked at uh, three commands so far in this series. Be fruitful and multiply. Be fruitful and multiply, yes. And fill the sanctuary with your noise. I love it. Um, Be fruitful and multiply. Um, Have babies, right? Be committed to having children, trusting God um, in that matter, and then we looked at fill the earth, have lots of babies. The command of God, contrary to all the fear-mongering scientists and, and climate, climatologists and all, you know, political things, the command of God is fill the earth. Be so fruitful, so multiplying that it says later in Genesis, abundantly fill the earth, Okay. And then subdue the earth. The earth is, a, um, is a, a treasure box filled with resources. God made this world in order to sustain his image bearers. I mean, just to say that is sort of radical, radical Christianity today, right? Because um, if the earth isn't seen as, a, as a, an entity in, in and of itself, then... Um, uh, everybody talks about the scarcity of what's there, and, uh, and yet we trust that the Lord knows what he has put into the earth and around the earth, and, and, uh, and that there will be uh, an abundance to um, sustain mankind, so subdue the earth. In the context of marriage, which we will get to in this series, that's another of the creation mandates. Man is to make babies so that he can abundantly fill the earth and then harvest from the earth through those smart people all the riches that God has stored in it. That's counter-cultural vision, isn't it? It's so radically different than what we've been taught by the university, right? Right? We turn now to God's command that man rule the earth. Specifically, the command we are looking at says that man is to rule over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the sky, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So, the fish, the birds, the animals, we are to rule over them. Man is to rule all the creatures of the earth, he's to have dominion over all those creatures. So a few points on this. The first thing we can take away from this command is this. Man has, authority and man has an authority and dignity and a worth that exceeds that of all the creatures. Okay? Let me say it again. Man has an authority, a dignity, and a worth that exceeds that of all the creatures. All the animals, all the birds, all the fish. All those things in the Mariana Trench that look terribly evil, right? Um, Man has more worth, authority, dignity than that. Man is the pinnacle of God's creation. And is so because he, unlike all the animals and creatures and fish, man was created in the image of God. Your golden retriever was not created in the image of God. Your cat was definitely not created in the image of God. It has an image, but I'm not going to go there. It's unfair to cats. I mean, it really is unfair to cats. Cats are cute. But that man was, was created in the image of God means that man is like God, right, though not God, and is and in looking at man we we see the we see God's glory in man we see the invisible God's glory we can see what is invisible because he's put the image his own image in man right we can we we observe the visible God's glory as in a mirror man can use reason think of that Man can use reason. Man can use language. Man can use his will. He can worship. He can live morally or immorally. The animals cannot. They can't do any of those things. They may give the appearance of it from time to time, but they do not reason and use language as we do. Oh, they communicate, but they do not have developed languages right? Instinct has not led to the discovery of logic in the animals, right? Animals do not have any sense of what is true, good, or beautiful. These truths used to be widely accepted and uncontroversial, but the devil has blinded our eyes and evolutionary thought has reduced all life down to the same level, right? Whether amoeba or bird or man all alike arose from the primordial soup, a cosmic accident when heat and time and a bunch of unliving substances were cooked up into living cells somehow. No one's ever explained that. What that diabolical teaching has done is brought down man to the level of the gorilla or a goat. Or a grape. Or a grain of wheat. Or rather, in many ways, it has brought the aardvark and the anchovy, right, and the amoeba up to the level of man. And that is not proper. That is not the way that God intended his world to be ordered. Right, Man endowed with God's image and an eternal soul was ordered to rule the earth and to have rule over all those lesser creatures. Those creatures that don't have the same glory, dignity, value, worth as man. That used to be normal. I say it today and I feel like I might get slapped or the tomatoes might be thrown at me. Not from this crowd, but if I went and said something like that at, you know, any university, they'd just be like, what, what, what cave did you just walk out of, you, you idiot? Um, it is scandalous. Calvin said this, although the sun and the moon are such noble creatures that they appear to be divine, although the heavens also have an appearance which astonishes and delights men, although the great diversity of fruits and other things that we see here on earth are designed to declare unto us a divine majesty. The fact remains that if we compare all of that with man, we will find in man such grander and more exquisite features. Right? All those things are glorious, but in man, there is far more exquisite glories. Of course, what Calvin says is exactly what King David contemplates in Psalm 8. Think of Psalm 8. When I consider your heavens, you know, when I look out on your creation, when I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have ordained what is man that you take thought of him and the son of man that you care for him? Right? So he's like looking at these glories and he's like, well, what are we? What is man? And then the verse is, yet you made him a little lower than God. And you crown him with glory and majesty. Speaking of man, mankind. I'm not going to say human and humanity for for obvious patriarchal reasons, okay? It's man and mankind. You crown him with glory and majesty. You make him to rule over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes through the paths of the seas. So that's Psalm 8 is about this creation ordinance, right? There are so many glories, but the glory of man, he's just a little less than God. That's how wonderfully he made mankind, and he rules over, he walks on the animals. He rules over them. Walk as a metaphor for rule. We can look out on the glory of God's creation and be awed, but nothing, nothing rises to the level of the greatness of And the exquisite features of mankind. Yes, the image of man was marred by the fall, but it was not destroyed by the fall. All men and women are image bearers of God, and there is a wonderful glory about that truth. Only man was given this order to rule, not the fish, not the elephants, not the sharks, not the bears, right? Not the eagles. They were not given this command. Oh, oh, we take great delight in those things. We, we, I love seeing an eagle fly, right? Who, who doesn't? I mean, there's, there's glory there, right? But we ought not get confused and think they have an innocence or a dignity or a value or a virtue that surpasses that of man. We cannot get confused about that but we've gotten confused about that issue today and it is really honestly the leveling that the evolutionary thought of life has brought and so now so now an amoeba has as much value as you if not more no more proof is necessary than the fact that we penalize those who disturb an eagle's nest, and praise those who kill their children in the womb. Right? Do you need any more proof? Here's another thing we can take away from this command of God to man regarding ruling the creatures. Man's rule over the creatures is proven by his act of naming the animals. Right? Jump forward to chapter 2 of Genesis at 2.18. so God, when he was creating, brought these animals to Adam and gave him the work of assigning a name to each one of them. This was a fulfillment of that command to rule. God puts his own name on things, you know, right? He puts his own name on things in order to show his authority. In 1 Kings, we read this, But to his son I will give one tribe, that my servant David may have a lamp always before me in Jerusalem, the city where I have chosen for myself to put my name. Right? And that's like, that is my city. And as Adam names the animals, he's like, that is my animal. That is my fish. That is my worm. Because I've named it, right? When you have a child, do you allow the child to pick his own name? (laughs) No. As parents, one of the first things you do for your child is, is give that child a name. Most often you choose a name because you hope the child will be molded or taught by that name. I chose names Uh, from the Bible so that my children could then go uh, read about their namesakes in the Word of God. So one of the first ways we bless our children and exercise our authority over them was by naming them. The parent names the child and does so because they wish to influence their nature, right? Push them in a little direction with that name. About Adam, Adam naming the animals, Luther writes... Without any new enlightenment, solely because of the excellence of his nature, man views all the animals and thus arrives at such a knowledge of their nature that he can give each one a suitable name that harmonizes with its nature. From this enlightenment there also followed, of course, the rule over all the animals, something which is also pointed out here, since they were named in accordance with Adam's will. Therefore, by one single word, he was able to compel lion, bears, boars, tigers, and whatever else there is among the more outstanding animals to carry out whatever suited their nature. This ability to, we have lost through sin. So what is he saying there? What he's saying is we've lost the ability to name perfectly in a way that fits the character of the nature of the animal, okay? But we have not lost our ability to name. To name at least with the hope of influencing their nature, right? We hope to shape the nature of our children with their name, but we do not name having a knowledge of their perfectly formed character. But Adam did. Adam perfectly understood those animals when he named them, and he gave them names appropriate to their nature. And... But but this I, this authority to name. I mean, every scientist who goes into the jungle and discovers a new spider underneath some leaf in a huge jungle, what's the first thing he does? Names that puppy so he can get credit, so he can rule over that little tiny spider that resembles seven hundred other spiders but has one tiny little distinction and he claims it and usually works his own name into the name of the spider right he's he's marking his territory there all right but this reflects that creation ordinance that we have we have rule over the animals third here's another way that we can another thing we can take away from this creation ordinance to rule the animals that we have this command does not mean does not mean that the only use of animals is as food and clothing, okay? To be consumed. That is legitimate use, as we learn later in Genesis. To Noah, God said, "...the fear of you and the terror of you will be on every beast of the field and on every bird of the sky, with everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. Into your hand they are given." Every moving thing that is alive shall be food for you. I give all to you as I gave the green plant only. You shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. But it is not the only use, right? Food, clothing. Here's Bovink on this topic. He says, The animal world has significance also for our science and arts, our religion, and morality. God as something has much to tell us in the animal. His thoughts and words speak to us out of the whole world, even out of the world of plants and animals. When botany and zoology trace out their thoughts, these sciences, which no man, certainly no Christian, may despise. Moreover, how rich the animal world is in moral significance for man. Listen to this. The animal points to the boundary beneath, above which man must raise himself and to the level of which he must never sink. Man can become an animal and less than an animal if he dulls the light of reason, breaks the bond with heaven, and seeks to satisfy all his desire on earth like an instinctual beast. Animals are symbols of our virtues and vices. The dog shows us the image of loyalty The spider of industry, the lion of courage, the sheep of of innocence, he says. The dove of integrity, the deer of the soul thirsting for God. And just so too, the fox is the image of cunning, the worm of misery, the tiger of cruelty, the swine of baseness, the snake of devilish guile, and the ape. Who most nearly resembles the form of man declares when an impressive physical organization amounts, what an impressive physical organization amounts to without the spirit. The spirit that is from above. In the ape, man sees his own caricature. It's so helpful, isn't that? So helpful. But to see. In, the, in your, your old dog, a picture of loyalty, that's helpful to us, right? That, that's helpful to us, and that's what he's talking about. And so animals, God has given them the, the ability to, to show forth these characteristics, even though they do not have souls. But that, that quote of Bavink is helpful to me. To rule the animals does not mean to use them only for our stomachs and bodies. Yes, the animals are made out of meat, but our rule over them does not mean that that is the only way that we can appreciate them. We can observe their beauty. We can can receive a testimony of God's creative power, right? We can observe their behavior and learn, you know, learn about what is virtuous and what is sinful. Same with the plants. They are food, clothing, and shelter for us, but That is not all they are for us. God made them beautiful, not merely useful. God speaks through his creation, telling of his glory. Um, Though God has given us sanction to use plants and animals for sustaining us, the way they testify of God's greatness is the reason why we should should practice some kind of sanctified, non-idolatrous environmentalism. Okay? That's the reason why we should care about the world and God's world. God even uses the animals to discipline man. 2 Kings 2, then he went up from there to Bethel, and as he was going up by the way, young lads came out from the city, this is speaking of, of Elisha, and mocked him and said to him, go up, you bald head, go up, you bald head. And when he looked behind him and saw them, he cursed them in the name of the Lord. Then two female bears came out of the woods and tore up 42 lads of their number. Discipline of the Lord. A fulfillment of a verse in Leviticus. If then you act with hostility against me and are unwilling to obey me, I will increase the plague on you seven times according to your sins. I will let loose among you the beasts of the field, which will bereave you of your children and destroy your cattle and reduce your numbers so that your road lies deserted. God using two she-bears, you know, forcing their will to go kill 42 young men who had mocked the prophet. So children, do not mock prophets. Don't mock holy things. God will judge you. God even uses the animals as part of the armies of his people. I will send my terror ahead of you and throw into confusion all the people among whom you come and I will make all your enemies turn their backs to you. I will send hornets ahead of you so that they will drive out the Hivites, the Canaanites, and the Hittites before you. Imagine that. Your armies are going into the land to kick out the people, and God's promised to send armies of hornets. It's great. It's great. So that's the place of animals in God's economy. Now fourth, here's another thing we learn from this creation ordinance. God has given us rule over the animals even for their good, for the animal's good, for the creature's good. We have been taught that nature left to itself will thrive, right? We've been taught that. We've been taught that we've got to get out of here, that voluntary human extinction movement. We've got to kill humans so that the earth can go back to sweet, pleasant, you know, place that it's always been. And as soon as we accomplish that, you know what's going to happen? Giant volcanoes is going to go off and kill everything. A giant volcano will, will just, it's nature, you know? But you know what, what mankind created in God's image is doing? There are some geologists who are like, yeah, we should probably try and figure out a way to stop that giant volcano from exploding. And they're doing work like that. That's stupendous. No animal is trying to figure that out. But man, created in the image of God, is trying to figure out something as stupendous as keeping Yosemite from blowing up the world. Right? It's a super volcano down there. It is. There are hot springs. That proves it. But listen to this. God has given us rule over the animals even for their good. We have been taught that nature left to itself will thrive. The voluntary human extinction movement declares that in order for nature to thrive, man must be taken out of nature. They clearly do not value the obvious excellence of man. They believe that a beaver dam is more sophisticated than a spaceship that drops a few men off on the moon. That's ridiculous. And I like beaver dams. They believe a, a whale song is more sophisticated than Milton's Paradise Lost. And I like whale songs. But it's not even near the communication of Paradise Lost. And believing that they can angle for the extinction of the pinnacle of God's creation, man. I mean, ironically, according to their view, if man went extinct, wouldn't the apes just evolve to make more humans in a million years or so? I mean, so they got to figure that one out too. But um, they, in other words, believe that man is very bad for this world and his rule has, ha, is what has led to us being on this tipping point where humanity will die out. But God has a different purpose for man in relation to the animals. He is to be a steward, even a friend. Right Now think of this command in God's law. Deuteronomy 22.6 If you happen to come upon a bird's nest along the way, in any tree or on the ground, with young ones or eggs, and the mother sitting on the young or on the eggs, you shall not take the mother with the young. You shall certainly let the mother go but the young you may take for yourself in order that it may be well with you and that you may prolong your days. Okay, so just, we all remember that from our Old Testament readings. And I always assumed in that verse that the young birds of the eggs were taken in order to preserve um, the person taking them. In other words, they became food. Calvin says, um, no one wants to eat Lean young birds. <laughs> so clearly, the taking of the young and the eggs was in order to preserve the breed. In other words, it was to create. They were taken to be raised without the 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 uh, difficulty that a bird has in raising its young. Okay, so they're taken so that man can steward the birth of those eggs. And preserved the line. They were taken in order to be nurtured to majority. He writes, Calvin writes, If there be one drop of compassion in us, it will never enter into our minds to kill an unhappy little bird, which so burns with either the desire of offspring or with love toward its little ones, as to be heedless of its life and to endanger itself to the desertion of its eggs or its brood wherefore it is not to be doubted but that in this elementary lesson god prohibited his people from savageness and cruelty right that's the warning there it's he the man going and harvesting is actually going to be preserving the line now that's helpful to me it it shouldn't even enter into our minds to take Take that mother with the young. That is very careful thinking. It shows us that man has a stewardship, and his stewardship, as with the raising of those birds to maturity, will lead to the preservation of the animals. Yes, we have a vested interest in such preservation, food. But we also demonstrate the positive good we bring to those very animals and preserving their line. That in microcosm is how we are to relate to animals. We eat them, and we bless and help them. We have power and knowledge and ability they lack, and so our rule is meant to be a blessing to beasts. There are few things more troubling than when a man is cruel to an animal. It's horrible. It's horrible because it's somebody who has great strength afflicting something that has little strength in most cases. A man beats his dogs or his horses or neglects to feed and water them, he is a beast himself, okay? He who has strength and power over an animal should never use that strength to diminish the animal that is already already his servant. Indeed, even the cattle are made to rest on the Sabbath day. Take a look at the fourth commandment proverb you know the fourth commandment says you have to let your animals take a sabbath they get to rest they get to refresh you know they get to they get to take a nap on the sabbath proverbs 12:10 a righteous man has regard for the life of his animal but even the compassion of the wicked is cruel i I'm sure much more could be said on this topic, but I I think that's enough for us now. Man, as the ruler of the animals, is to be a positive good for them. That does not mean that he refuses to kill a mosquito or eat a cow or put down a suffering golden retriever or exercise dominion over them. That would be to break God's creation order to rule over them. We mustn't treat an animal like we would a human child. There is a vast difference between the two. But man's responsibility and authority given from God does not give man license to be savage and cruel and wasteful when it comes to animals and creatures and fish and birds. The king, we would expect of those who rule over us, we expect them to do good for the people just so man should do good to the fish of the sea and the birds of the sky and everything that moves on the earth. The moment we lose sight of that benevolent authority over the animals, we will not just become vegan, we will become idolaters who exchange the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. And then we join the voluntary human extinction movement and sacrifice ourselves for the praise and promotion of birds and beasts. God's creation ordinances are necessary, therefore, in order to keep this world in its proper order. And we, we throw off God's creation ordinances and this one to our own destruction. Amen? Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for this world that you have stocked for us. And we thank you for the, the beauty of your creation, the beauty of the sun and the sunsets and the sunrises and the oceans and the birds and, and the animals and all their, their difference and exquisite uh, qualities. But Father, you have made us differently. You have put your image in us. You have created us in your likeness. And and you have commanded us to rule. And so, Father, I pray that in in your providence that you would cause us to know you and to rule this earth as we ought from that knowledge. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.